0: Hi Chris, how are you?
1: Yeah, hi Rod. Weeks come around quickly. They don't have,
0: they don't have. We're already on episode 13. Unlucky. I'm Unlucky I'm for some, I'm sure it'll be lucky for us. i got to say episodes 11 and 12, you know, in the last couple of weeks. A little less lucky for me. I apologise to all of our listener about the amount of coughing and sn- sniffling and the odd sort of tissue noise that you could hear. I thought I'd caught them in the edit, I absolutely didn't catch them in the edit so I apologise for my sickness and I'll try to do better in the future.
1: Yeah, you know what, I know it's one or two when I listen to it on playback, but actually during recording, I thought you muted them all, so apologies, I must have missed them as well.
0: I guess these things happen, we live and we learn, and I'll uh, I'll know what I'm doing for the future, so yeah, sorry about that, sorry about the below standard sound quality, and uh, we'll we'll endeavour to do better.
1: Yeah, and I'll try and speak up a bit, because I've always come across a little quiet.
0: We're learning as we go. And again, I think at some point, maybe we'll talk through our whole recording setup and how we do this. That might be interesting for someone at some point and we might get recommendations on how to improve it. You never know.
1: Yeah, always happy to have anybody's feedback out there. Do get in contact. We give the details at the end of the show. But yeah, any feedback always welcomed as we do want to keep doing it and we do want to get better.
0: Absolutely. And feedback makes it a more interesting show for everyone. It gives us questions to answer and it gives us things to look into. So be very much appreciated. So- Yes, certainly. Straight into follow-up, I think, and we've got a few items built up from the last couple of episodes. One was a piece of homework for me. I was tasked by Chris last time to go and watch the baseball, the live baseball, on Apple TV+, Plus, which I did on the Friday it was released. Uh, There were two games you could have watched. I didn't make it all the way through the game, I I must admit. It wasn't either team I was particularly interested in. I clicked on it at 11.50, 23.50 when the stream started. Uh, I watched it for a little bit. The quality was quite good. There were some announcers. I didn't recognize any of the announcers. They weren't particularly famous to me anyway. The games were, you know, the game that I watched uh, was in decent quality. The stream quality was high. I was quite impressed with that. Sound was fine. Whenever it was cut for an advert, you'd just get a grey screen saying no adverts in your area or or similar to that, so that's that was interesting, I heard. Americans would actually get affiliate answers, largely for gambling websites and things, I'm led to believe, uh, for what people were seeing. And the graphics were all in a nice San Francisco font, so there was a bit of an Apple spin over it. I wouldn't say it was designed right from the beginning to the end to be an Apple thing, but it was an interesting experience that they did it, it worked quite well, and then, The other bit I had to follow up on. On Saturday morning, there were no pre-recordings. You couldn't go back and watch it if you'd missed it. If you didn't watch it live, you didn't see it. End of. So I think that, I mean, maybe that's the deal they've got with MLB, Major League Baseball in the States, but that was that.
1: Okay, so I didn't see it, so I've been away. I'm curious to see some of it and actually see would would baseball work for me. I think I'd quite enjoy it. But questions. So I was listening to some other podcasts and they said that I think they've got different uh, commentators and, and announcers. And I believe a lot of them are, are female, and I think Apple has gone out of their way to introduce some diversity, was was my understanding. I, I I don't know how you found that.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think more increasingly we see that in sport and I, I, again I can only vouch for the sports I'd, I watch which is largely MotoGP and certainly the pit walk and stuff like that is now done with two uh, female commentators as well, there's very few female riders in, in MotoGP so, but it is good to see uh, them, one of which is Susie Perry I don't know if you watched Top Gear back in the day she was a presenter on Top Gear in the UK uh, before the Clarkson, well between the Clarkson era, era I should maybe say uh, and she's one of the pit lane commentators, very knowledgeable, has been doing it for a long time but but yeah, there was that element that they were trying to be diverse in the presentation team. My understanding is that the presentation team remains the same between games, whereas in the States, typically, you'd have different presenters for each game. You have these three presenters and whoever's doing the stuff at the side of the shows constantly throughout it. So I think it's a good opportunity for these people, if they're not well known, to get better known. And I presume they've got other jobs. I don't even know if they're contracted by Apple or they're contracted by MLB themselves.
1: Yeah, so again, the podcast I was listening to, they're, they're asking similar questions. I think it's great they're introducing some diversity. And my understanding was from the podcast I was listening to, who listened to a lot of baseball or watched a lot of baseball, that a lot of the are your standard white male in the 60s, been doing it forever. So I think it's quite nice they've introduced maybe a different spin on it. <laughs> Excuse the pun. And then with regards to Susie Perry, she did do a brief stint on Formula One. I thought she was quite good at doing the Formula One, big fan always have been but she didn't last very long sadly I think think maybe only one season and then they, they replaced her with somebody else but I think it's good and they it, I, I don't know I'd, I don't know what to say it frustrates me that some sports are still heavily male-dominated male
0: yeah, they are. I, I mean, we could, that's a whole different sub- subject for a podcast. I think is if you looked at sports where where there should be a le- level playing field for people from other de- from other ethnicities and from from you know other genders. You know, motorsports should be one that there is no barrier to that. It's not about your physical size or your power or anything like that. Baseball, you might be something similar, but this I have never. I'm not aware of women in the men's leagues, or, or, or even if there have been other than you know that film back in the day, a league of their own with Madonna, in, um, where where women did. play played baseball while the men were fighting in the second world war but certainly i think as soon as the men came back from war that was the end of it so i agree it should be there should be better representation
1: Uh, agreed and then how did the app hold up because if you remember when apple tv plus first launched the app was actually quite disappointing and a bit ropey and isn't perfect now but was it okay
0: as much as i watched there was one crash where it reloaded and started streaming again so the stream paused as much as anything but other than that it was rock solid the quality was very good i was quite impressed from that point of view
1: and how did you watch it? On my phone, with headphones. On. Okay, which yep. is probably the the way a lot of people are going to watch it.
0: I would have thought which so. I mean, it's I, a sound I, device, isn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean that makes sense. If you're if you're traveling back on the bus or you know somebody else is driving you or something like that you chances are you got your phone or your ipod with you you stick your headphones in and when you get back you might watch it on the apple tv plus app on your on your on your tv so i think the ability to do that is good i've got to think the ability to pause it would have been more useful though you know i'm going to pause it here i'm going to whip in at the house and i can resume it again as opposed to even that facility that wasn't obvious to me of how i'd do that
1: but i wonder if that's part of the rights because you said you couldn't then go back and watch the next day because i went to go and have a look the next day and i was like oh i can't watch it i thought i'd just ch- check it out like, like you do on the iPlayer and you can watch it usually up to 30 days afterwards. feels like that's quite a sports thing though because I do get cheesed off with Match of the Day on BBC. That's unavailable for so many days afterwards and my son sometimes later in the week goes, oh, can I go back and watch Match the Day? And it's like, yeah, it's fine. And then go and find it. It's like, oh. Not there, and it like hangs around for a really short period of time, and I, I don't know why they do that.
0: I, I suspect you're right. It's about the rights holders for the individual sport, isn't it? I guess the Premier League in the UK are going up. Oh, you've got this for so long before we sell it onto our affiliates, or you know, it goes into a greatest hits stream at the end of the season. I don't know how that works.
1: Yeah, it cheeses me off a bit. I think we're now in an area where we want on demand and I think to me I think it should all have a shelf life at least of a week until the next one comes out that, that replaces it that'd be my preference
0: yeah I, I guess I guess so there are a lot of games there's a lot of baseball matches a lot of football games that, that you know having them all is probably a fair demand but I agree with you there's no in this day and age there's no technical reason not to it's not like storage is an issue or the streams are an issue with you they can do it
1: yeah definitely definitely should we move on
0: I think we should. I think we've done it for baseball. So there was a little bit of talk between us last week of when Apple stopped supporting 32-bit applications in the OS and just a little bit of history. I went and looked it up. Leopard, version 10.5 of macOS, was the first one to introduce 64-bit binaries. There was a purely 64-bit kernel introduced in Snow Leopard, which was the version after Leopard, 10.6. The 32-bit kernel was removed altogether in Mountain Lion, which was 10.8, although you could still use 32-bit apps within it. And then from Catalina, which is now 10.15, no running 32-bit apps were allowed. So from Catalina onwards was when there was you couldn't run that.
1: Yeah, and I, I remember the bit in Snow Leopard because I think on stage at like WWDC, they had a really cool diagram that showed, like in Leopard, you started getting CS64-bit yeah, binaries you could run. And then in Snow Leopard, they started going through all the layers of the OS and, and moving more bit, more pieces to be 64-bit. And they obviously got to the end of that in Mountain Lion, which is which bits were 32 and 64 and how they were slowly going kind of like back through the OS and making more of it 64. So I think great on their side to deal with all the legacy, I think, and just keep moving us forward and you don't end up with this really slow beast that's unmaintainable. And I, I do like the way they keep trimming it down. I personally think it's really good.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes the operating system smaller and they don't have all the legacy that Windows has had to deal with. And, you know, it doesn't affect Linux as far as I can see to to the same degree. And I think I'm going to touch on this a little bit again later because I went and did a gaming experiment afterwards to see how the 32-bit, 64-bit Apple Silicon transition has affected things. But yeah, I... The balance between pushing the platform forward and not having too much legacy cruft and forcing developers to do it and actually moving too quickly and forcing people, you know, we were talking only last week about bug fixes to earlier versions of the West and Apple not supporting security updates for that. And I sometimes wonder if the pace is a bit quick. I guess if it hadn't been so quick, we wouldn't be sitting on the, all the Apple Silicon that we are these days and being in the excellent position we are. But it just makes me slightly uncomfortable so far that they're in such a rush to drop things that I I wonder I worry about people getting lost in the past, and you can understand why so many businesses, in particular, stay on Windows because they are guaranteed that sort of legacy support.
1: Yeah, yeah, I don't dis I don't disagree. I I think it's quite healthy, and I wonder actually if this strategy has allowed them, like you say, to execute on the Apple Silicon in a really neat and efficient way, and it to be such a success because they have slowly been dropping the craft of. As they've gone, I think the one thing I probably didn't appreciate when it went to Apple Silicon was, oh, I no longer can run Windows, which isn't a big deal for me right now. But at the time when we first got Intel Macs, and I can't remember the year, I'm going to say 2008. I think it was before that. Yeah, it was around the iPhone era. I think they announced it before the iPhone and then they did a two-year transition. But actually one of the drivers for me getting a Mac then or a new one was I could run both OSs and that was important to me at the time. But over time, and as the Macs got more mature, the actually my desire to run Windows and for people with my family to need Windows is massively diminished to zero pretty much. So I did think that was going to be a bit of an issue, but I do reckon their strategy of getting to this period has meant that they can move forward and own the whole stack because they've been so good at actually trimming the craft. And I'll be honest, getting rid of 32-bits apps caused me no issue whatsoever, but... I am largely on the iPad these days.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit about that. And we're going to do a section on virtualization there, which we teased last week. And it's not going to be the greatest thought out thing in the world. But I think that application of the impact of what moving away from Intel meant and what that still continues to mean and will continue to mean for a few years is quite an important thing to hang on to. So I think we'll talk about that in a little bit of time. No, that's great. So I think that deals with our 32-bit, 64-bit thing, other than what we're going to talk about in a minute. Following up on a bit of my homework, I finally watched Coda as well. So the Oscar-winning film Coda, which won Best Supporting Actor for Troy Kotzer. And it's quite an unusual Best Picture winner, I think, in the sense that it wasn't your typical worthy standout, you know, something like a Lost in Translation sort of feel where it's all very slow and very worthy and you can appreciate the cinematography, you can appreciate that, but it's actually not much of a story. There was definitely a story here, but my criticism of it would be that it's a story I've seen a lot before. It was just your fairly standard coming of age story, and what made a novel was, you know, the fact that it was made with with the, the hard of hearing or the deaf community in mind for it, and that was excellent. I got to say, everybody involved with that were good. It didn't feel stand out to me. It, it just felt like a really well made made movie that came together quite well. Some light humor at the start. It was fairly predictable. I could see where it was going to go, but yeah, well made, well acted, nice script, quite funny. No complaints. Slightly surprised it's a best 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 picture winner though.
1: Uh, I completely agree. I think it was a good film. I like the take on it. But, but yeah, for me, it wasn't. It wasn't the perfect film. If you know what I mean. I think if I'm honest, my best film for the last twelve months is Pixar's Luca, Luca, and I would have I would have given it to that hands down because I love that film. Love watching it with my kids. I can't remember if we were in a lockdown at the time, and it was it just landed for us. It just landed at the right time. And we must have watched that thing 10 times since. So I uh, yeah, surprised. It's great in a way, though, that a streaming service has won it because it's showing that that they're acknowledging streaming services. It's good that it's a film that is a bit different, a bit off the wall. But yeah, I'm, I'm still a little surprised by it, if I'm honest.
0: Yeah, to me, I think, The best supporting actor nom for Troy Kutzer was absolutely, you know, deserved. He acted his socks off in what was probably quite a difficult thing. And it's a celebration of of a community that we very rarely see represented in, in mainstream movies. So from that point of view, absolutely, I understand it. But I think if we're being ultra, ultra critical about it, there are probably better films, more more complete films that were you know deserving of the best picture. But yeah, I, I, I don't get me wrong, I did enjoy it, and I think we're in agreement about where it went. Following up on the second part of my homework, I have watched the first episode of Pachinko as well, which I thoroughly enjoyed. I uh, haven't got around to watching the second one yet, and I think we're up to episode five release now. But I will continue to do so. It, Seems like uh, quite an interesting twist on, on, on sort of a love story through the ages. It's quite sort of generational, following a, a Korean family and their sort of interactions with Japan and America, and as the centuries change, and following the major characters through that. At least that's as much as we want to work out from the first episode. If you don't like subtitles, I think you're going to struggle with it slightly. <laughs> but I thoroughly enjoyed the first episode.
1: Yeah. I- I need to get back to it. It's, I think I've been a bit inundated with Apple TV at the moment. So it's on my list. That and Severance I haven't caught up on. We're actually on holiday for the week and I downloaded a bunch of stuff to my iPad to watch with the family. And actually we watched barely anything. It was We had a week away from TV and games and lots of reading and going out and about. So I, I miss, miss quite a lot of all that.
0: That's not necessarily a bad thing. I think maybe stepping back from our technology now and then is probably not the worst thing. Not helpful for the podcast, we've got sections to fill. But I think in general, it is a good thing to do it.
1: Yeah, Please be assured this week is back to normal. Um, I did watch, though, the latest episode of Slow Horses, which I'm really enjoying. so well done, and it's actually made me go and purchase the audiobooks to listen to for the series. Thankfully, I've got some credits on Audible because I buy them in annual chunks. And actually, the first two books for me really well written the narration's great on audible and actually quite like that the whole story centered around the, the rejects of mi5 basically that are outcasts because it's quite an interesting take isn't it for for a, you know a world to be set around the the people that aren't at the top of their game that aren't the best in the world and whereas a lot of films i think we watch about everybody being amazing and usually like I say at their peak and it's quite interesting to see this alternative take on it so, yeah, I'd recommend Slow Horses to watch. It's fantastic. And actually, some of it's set near where I live in Gloucestershire. So it's quite interesting in book two, hearing about places that are very close to my house, but popping up. And so, oh, okay, they're based over here. So, no, I think it's good. I would definitely recommend them enjoying, the like I say, listening to the books. I'd probably have enjoyed reading the books, but I just can struggle to fit that in at the moment. Nice. GCHQ is near you, right? Yeah, GCHQ, <laughs> but they're actually talking about some small villages in the middle of Gloucestershire, which is ah. just blow my mind because we don't often get much of a mention and swindon which isn't very far from me and and various other places
0: exciting stuff no that sounds very good i'll have to add it to the list as well no i think that's good i think that does us for follow-up chris we've actually we've both done our homework for once pretty much and and we've followed up on things well that's good so we'll move straight on to the news
1: i've noted severance and Pichinko to to watch and hopefully try and catch some baseball Sounds like a plan. And I'll do slow horses and hopefully continue to watch Pachinko. So first of all, then we've got potential case leaks for the next set of iPhones during September, the iPhone 14, which I think we talked a little bit about the iPhone 14s having smaller notches, and maybe the Pro will get a, far, a newer, faster chip, and the, the non-Pro phones will just get a standard... Well, it may even just be this year's chip or a slight variation on this year's chip that's already out. So I think that's quite interesting to see where they're going with it. And now the cases have leaked and one thing just to note on the, the size of the phones apparently the mini is being dropped which i think is a bit disappointing because i was kind of giving it the side eye of do i want something a bit smaller and so no mini and so the regular phone will just be the standard size and then there will be also what well, is the max the pro max phone as well. you'll be able to get that as an iphone standard in essence so you'll be able to get a big and a regular standard and then the same again for the pro phones but interesting looking at the cases the camera bumps again even bigger is what it looks like to me especially on the pro how do you think that fares with what you've got now you've you've got the 13 which is heftier than the 12 that i'm rolling
0: yeah i mean and, and just to be clear to sort of explain what's happened you get these kind of leaks leading up to iphone announcements so in the sort of four to six months before the next generation of iPhone, because these are physical things that actually need to get poured into molds and constructed in case manufacturers need to know what's going on so they can build all all that kind of stuff, that the exterior, or at least the rear of devices, tends to appear quite often before leaks. So what we're seeing here is exactly as you've described, Chris. We're getting the iPhone and the iPhone Pro split into the iPhone Max and the iPhone Pro Max sizes. And as you say, the mini seems to have disappeared from this. We don't get to see the front from these at all. But exactly as you said, based on what in this leak, and the link will be in the show notes as always, is that the camera bump, which on my phone is significant and even more significant than it was on the iPhone 11 Pro that I had, is even more significant. So the other rumor about there being a periscope camera or something is definitely not true. Again, we don't know what's in the front, but the camera bump looks bigger. I mean, it's going to be a proper rocker on the table at this point.
1: Yeah, and I'm kind of in the market for a new phone this year. And I, I don't know, it's putting me off a little bit. If anything, I think I want a smaller phone and a, something a bit more svelte in the pocket. But then I am hearing that we're meant to be getting like a 48 megapixel sensor. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm really interested to see what, see what, what we get and how they talk us through it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm a little disappointed in a way. I mean, it's quite iconic, I suppose, that Apple have kept that camera in the corner. But when you look at what Android phones do, and they put them across the center of the phone, and the latest Google Pixel, which is a sensor bar right across the back of the phone, sort of a horizontal line across the back, when you place it down on a table, it's going to be more level. And it's in a more natural place, I would say. Whereas, you know, the criticism that this looks like your cooking stove or something like that, just bunged on the side of your phone, is is fairly valid, I think. And I understand they don't change the industrial design much, but this, to the eye, without noticing the slightly bigger cameras on it, the slightly bigger lenses on it, I should say, looks very like the current lineup of phones.
1: Yeah, agreed. And I'm amazed they haven't put them in the middle. You know, a company famed for placement of cameras, alignment, you know, just, I don't know, it does seem a bit bizarre, but I guess it is now the differentiating factor. If somebody's got a case on their device and they're on the phone walking down the street, you know straight away from the back that it's an iPhone.
0: Yeah, and and where they put the lenses now as well, you know, when when they started with the iPhone 11 with the two lenses in a line, and and now they've they've moved them to the other position. They've sort of split positions between them, so you can actually tell the generations apart. Again, other than the size, this looks the same to me as the, as the standard iPhone 13 and the and the uh, iPhone 13 Pro. So, from externally bigger lenses, you're not going to know what chips inside of it. You're going to know if it's a standard or a Pro. But I guess it's the front that we really need to see at this point.
1: It is quite interesting though, looking at the case molds that the pro lens piece is so much bigger than the regular. You know, they're really pushing this pro camera system because they, they really talked about the pro camera system when the iPhone 13 came out. You can hear the keynote already. They're just going to really lean into it this year, aren't they? Yeah. Maybe that's the big differentiating factor to get people to pay that bit more to upgrade.
0: I mean, they always lean on the camera because and the iPhone's always there or thereabouts in, in camera tests, night night vision. Uh, it's not night vision, but night photographs and sensors and all the rest of it. And Google stole a march on them, I would say, with the night stuff, with the Pixel 5 and maybe the, the 3A, where it was all software-based for being able to do it. And they put better sensors in the, in the phones so they could do it. I think Samsung, at the other end of the scale have got a march on them on, on the zoom levels. They've certainly got a 10 times optical zoom and I think they've got a hundred times digital zoom that actually works really well with amazing stabilization in it. So I think through software and technology, other companies can do more, but what they're trying to be is a more complete package.
1: Yeah, I think they're trying to be more complete and also more accessible, aren't they? They're, they're, they're trying to get, get this stuff in the hands of everybody and I, I think that's hard to do.
0: Well, they want to get in the hands of everybody, but they want to make money through doing it as well, which a lot of Android phone makers certainly don't do. I mean, these won't be cheap devices.
1: Yeah, agreed. I'm a little scared already. And to be honest, that may well put me off because I'm so happy with my current phone and it's two years old. I mean, no rush to upgrade right now.
0: Yeah, yeah. Not everybody needs 8K and various HDR resolutions and things in the photographs. Even if you've got, an, for those who aren't aware, HDR is high dynamic range. If you look at a high dynamic range video on a modern iPhone, the screen actually gets much brighter than you'd see if you send it to somebody else. And therein lies the problem. If you take your picture that you've taken on your iPhone, even your 12 Pro, and send it to somebody with an iPhone 10, they won't appreciate that HDR imagery because their, camera, their, their display can't display it. So it's got to be somebody of a level to do that. So it's all very well doing. It and it might look great for a filmmaker or, or a professional they have got pro in the name i guess but even the standard phones you know taking those images and those videos at, at 8k at x number of frames per second in hdr isn't necessarily useful for everybody in your family that you send them on to
1: no i agree and it's gonna it will take a while for that to filter down but i, I don't know it's good to see apple pushing forwards but yeah you're right not everybody's going to be able to appreciate it
0: yeah, interesting. And then the front of the phone, just to, to finish this rumor off before we move on, they're saying that the notch may go in this one. We may have this sort of pill cut out that you and I discussed before, and a circular hole punch for, for a camera on the front as well. So that's quite good. It'll tidy up the front of it. But in the same way we're talking about the cameras being a differentiator for walking down the street and people knowing you've got an iPhone, I think the notch is a differentiator as well. So I'm surprised they're in such a rush to sort of change that at this stage.
1: Yeah, and the notch obviously is obviously something you see on all the silhouettes that they do of their devices. Same like the iPad's just around the rec and like the Mac's always got a keyboard. The, yeah, the notch is that bit of a differentiator. I'd be interested to see where they go with it.
0: Yeah, well, and the notch has crept into the the MacBook Pro market. The 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros have now got notches in them, the bigger screens, but also with the notch. So it seems like they're leaning into that a bit to me. So I'm quite curious to see what, the, what they look like when they're released.
1: I hope it doesn't come to the iPad
0: that would be the end of it for the iPhone, iPad for you, perhaps. Let's oh. we'll see how we go. We'll see we'll see how we go.
1: Good. Saying um, that, on the iPad, you've got plenty of space for a notch because there's nothing in the status bar in the middle of the screen.
0: That is true. Well, we've talked about the orientation of that before, so I can see the next thing I notes is the play date, which I don't know an awful lot about. So maybe you can fill us in on the play date.
1: Yeah, of course. So the play date was announced oh, years ago, back when wwdc was in person so i'm gonna say 2019 and john gruber stood up on stage for his talk show and said i've got I've, I've been silly i've got a beta os on my on my device and pulled out a play date obviously everybody thought he was going to pull out his iphone so it's been announced a long time they've been on about shipping it and the Playdate is a basically it's a black and white games console coming from a software company called panic who have historically for the mac have written transmit and more recently coda and Then in the games market, they did Firewatch. And what's the Goose Game? Untitled Goose Game. Untitled Goose Game, thank you. So they've done quite various things, and they've gone into making this piece of hardware. They've really struggled to get the yields and get the hardware right. They announced shipping last year. I was on holiday at the time with really limited signal and was trying to order it on my phone and on my iPad at the same time. And I finally got my order through, but I missed the first batch of shipping, and I contacted them, and they, they, they acknowledged they had a problem on their end. And I said, look, I've been really trying to get one. They've got multiple waves and I'm actually in wave two. So I'm not, not going to be getting mine anytime soon, but um basically it's a small square ish looking games console, black and white screen. Like I say, it's got a crank on the side that you put out and you can wind around to play some of the games for, for the mechanic. And that feels a bit Nintendo esque, a couple of buttons on it. And then they're going to do seasons of games that come with it. And then, and that's included in your, in your retail price. You get season one. So every few weeks you'll get a new game to play, which I quite like the idea of, like I say, with the, Apple TV shows, I quite like the idea of waiting a week to watch the next show and enjoying it. So I think that's quite good. They've also announced a couple of ways you can write apps for it. They've got their own more sort of storyboard, you know, click click and point eventually you can make simple ones. And then they've got a full SDK for it. Um, And they've released it to everybody. And if you want to go write a game for it, you can. I'm really interested in it. I think it was about 150 quid to buy. It's a bit out there. It's not, I don't think it's crazy money, but I just, for me, it, it just looked cool. And I've always admired what Panic do, so. I'm looking forward to it. The fact that phase one is shipping is great. And yeah, hopefully phase two will land, I don't know, hopefully before June, I'm hoping.
0: It's brave for a software company to take the leap into hardware in that way. And I, I applaud Panic for doing it. As you say, they've got, they're, they're a storied Mac developer. They've released lots of good apps over the years. And more games than I realized. I didn't realize Gorge, the Goose game was one of theirs, actually. And I've I've played that in a few places. So that is interesting. And to make, sort of, democratize it to allow anybody to develop a game and maybe have an easier way of doing so, that's good. Do you think the hardware will hold it back? Do you think there's a demand for black and white consoles with cranks on them? What do you do with a crank?
1: So the hardware, by the way, is they also partner with a company called Teenage Engineering who make quite cool hardware products. So... that's helped me when I was buying it because I was like, are they going to be any good at making hardware and shipping it? So I think the hardware will be good. Is there a desire for black and white console? Possibly not, but it's just a different take on something. And I quite like the idea, like let's try something different and not just turn out the same that everybody else has got. So I quite like doing something different with it. The crank, I think, will be interesting because in some games you might use it to run because you'll spin it around maybe to run your character or you'll use it to maybe do an interaction like you used to do on the on the Wii where you'd you know have to hold your your I can't remember what the what was it the Wii mote I think and you could turn it and point it at the screen so I'm interested to see where they go with it I like that they've opened up to for anybody to develop for and distribute games kind of the polar opposite of what we've been talking about on iPhones recently but I I don't know I I just think it's nice to do something different and I'm interested for a bit of different tech that isn't a budget busting thousand pounds yeah it's not all singing and dancing but you I think you're going to it eyes open I think it'd be quite cool. No,
0: it, it sounds interesting. And I, I think a new competitor on, on the platform is good. I mean, we know how much you like our gaming. We've got a whole dedicated section for it now. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more this podcast. I'm just as excited waiting for the Steam Deck. Mar- Marquez Brownlee did his review of that in the last week or so. And it's made me even more excited for it. I think it's a great thing. So I think having another competitor in that space and showing the value of mobile gaming beyond just the iPad uh, uh, you know, or the iPhone or something like that in dedicated hardware where you can push the limits of it and you keep the cost down because you make it black and white and whatever else you need to do to do it, I think it's laudable. And what it, more people should take a chance like that because you never know they might be successful.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. And I think they've been massively successful. I mean, forgive me, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but they, they basically they probably sold tens of thousands of units at, say, a couple hundred dollars, and therefore they're going to have plenty of revenue from this. But obviously it was a massive leap of faith and it's taken multiple years to get there and I think it's taken a lot longer because they I don't think they would have pre-announced it as early as they did if they'd have realized how long it was going to take to get out the door the one benefit I think of the black and white screen though has got to be unlike my Nintendo switch in that it will it will have charge in it when I come to pick it up after two days of not using it whereas my switch just seems to drain battery and I don't know what that is but it's the same between the regular switch and the OLED switch they have not improved its battery consumption in the background.
0: It's probably doing quite a lot. I mean, the Switch has got fans and stuff going on. And while you were talking there, I was thinking, um, you may not have seen the video from Quinn Nelson of Snazzy Labs, who's a YouTuber who does a lot of Mac stuff. And he built a PC using one of Teenage Engineering's cases. So I'll make sure I put the link in this no- the show notes. But just to give you an idea... Is that the
1: Cool Orange case?
0: It's the Cool Orange case, Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice case, but Good. he had some challenges in actually getting components to fit it and making it all fit together. And its I, I'm sure that their bespoke hardware that they're doing for themselves is better than a case they've lashed together. But it was quite an interesting watch. So I'll, I'll take out the um, YouTube video for that one. Good. Okay. I think that probably does it for the play date. Watch the space till you get yours and we'll update you on the play date and the Steam Deck when they come. My forecast for delivery for that is now between July and September. So maybe we'll get them about the same time.
1: Shows like it.
0: It does a bit, doesn't it? Maybe they're being made in the same factory. They do one play date, they do one Steam Deck.
1: I wonder which one they produced quicker.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the commodity hardware with a crank or not. Anyway, moving on, it seems there's a few new variants of the next generation of Macs being uh, spotted in the wild. We're seeing nine computers reported from Apple rumors with potentially four chips.
1: Okay, so I haven't looked too much into this one, actually. So is this, Do you? I guess this goes back to the first thing. Are we going to see an M2 in the Mac Pro first or do you think we're going to start Getting the M2 at, at the opposite end in the MacBook Air.
0: I think we'll start with the MacBook Air again. I think we'll see a bog-standard M2 chip, the same as we saw the M1 chip in the original MacBook Air and MacBook Pro, as was. So they're saying the devices we're going to see these in are a MacBook Air with an M2 chip, a Mac Mini also with an M2 chip, which is what they released them with last time. But we'll also see it, the M2 Pro chip in the Mac Mini, which is interesting because that's kind of beginning to eke into what the Mac Studio does. An entry-level 13-inch MacBook Pro with an M2 chip. So again, same as the M1. Swap one in, swap one out. And I suspect it's not in this rumor, but I'd be very surprised if we saw the touch bar on a 13-inch MacBook Pro at this stage. it
1: has
0: um, got to be dead. It's got to be dead. Uh, a 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pro model with M2 Pro and M2 Max. So again, swapping in what's in the, the 14 and 16s now. They don't need to do much more of those computers. The screens on those computers are excellent. They've just received the redesign. They've got MagSafe charging again. I bet that's a one-for-one one swap. And then the Mac Pro, and we're still waiting to see whether the Mac Pro will have some variant of the M1 or it will appear with the M2. So I guess I haven't answered your question, really. I, it could go either way. We could just see a launch in the MacBook, MacBook Air with the M2 or the Mac Pro could come out, WWC, all singing, all dancing, M2, top of the line.
1: Yeah, and you're coming on the Mac Mini. Actually, I think it's quite good they're going to put the regular M2 in it and the M2 Pro because then when they refresh the studio you're going to get then the M2 Max and the M2 Ultra in it, I would assume. And therefore, actually, if you're on a desktop box, they've got the box for you, whether it's the the cheaper chip, you know, the, the just the standard M2, the, the M2 Pro. And then obviously, if you need the performance, you're then going to probably double your price and, and go into the baseline M2 Max Studio, which would start probably two grand like it does now.
0: But what's missing from that list of computers I notice is the iMac.
1: <laughs> Interesting point. Yeah, think the iMac's dead
0: I don't think the iMac's dead I think for whatever reason they've left it off but it's interesting that it's not on that because maybe then they release an iMac at some point with an M1 Pro uh, sorry an M2 Pro in it and also a 27 inch iMac with an M2 Pro so there's got to be space in the lineup for that
1: yeah, it would make sense I'm amazed that they didn't take the opportunity to drop the i from iMac I thought they were just going to lose the the i because they, they've, they've dropped the i from a lot of software products and I, it's going to be hard, near on impossible to do it for the iPhone and the iPad because of the cachet of the brand. But I'm amazed they didn't do it with the Mac.
0: Yeah, I stood for internet, didn't it?
1: Then were the days. And <laughs> no. it, well, it just got popped into everything, didn't it? It seemed like we brushed steel back in the OS, but it just got put everywhere in the end. And then obviously then got obliterated. Same with I, same with harmonizing the names as well between like iphone and mac or software and like ibooks got renamed to apple books so i'm just surprised they didn't through the transition and with the radical design just go this is just going to be the mac and this is the mac most people and to be fair it would probably work quite well as just being the mac like the ipad is the ipad most people should buy just the the one with no no suffix on it just buy this one because it will do you if you don't know what you want you just want the one without any other names on it and i think they could have done that with the imac
0: yeah, it's part of their brand now, I think. As you say, it'd be very difficult to drop in the iPad and, and the iPhone. But that original iMac was such a classic design and sort of revitalized the company that they've really got to hang on to it in, in, in such a way. And we don't have iBooks anymore, even in the in in the in the written type. But in the same way that sort of gumdrop blue iMac came along, sorry, Bondi blue iMac came along, uh, and, and revolutionized the Mac and, and made it the force that it is. I think they'd be really reluctant to drop that. I mean, that's a little bit of Steve that's left in the company and permeates True. them.
1: True, but they've dropped so much other stuff. That's kind of how I was thinking about it. And they do seem to have walked away from the I branding so much. I mean, dare say 10 years from now, it'll make a comeback.
0: Well, as I recall, they, they had to buy iOS off Cisco, the trademark for the, the use of iOS off Cisco, had their own product for their switches. So they were pretty committed to it uh, in those days. But as you say, you know we're, we're decades on from that now, and it's a whole new world, so we, we will see.
1: Yeah, but also when iOS first came out, it was just on your phone and touch. And then obviously, as they brought it onto the iPad, that's when they moved to the iOS name, because it originally was called iPhone OS, wasn't it? And now they've obviously then split the iPad out from and called it iPad OS, even though it's, pretty, they could have probably just left it as iOS, to be honest. I don't think any of us have really seen that many differential features between the two yet.
0: Yeah, I think it's fair. Right, the next one's quite a quick one, I think, um, and applied to you, that Apple briefly borked the studio display by stopping signing software updates for it. So if you had destroyed your studio display and when you'd been away on holiday, you wouldn't be able to reinstall it until they started signing the software release again. That's a bit of a Ricky Mer- error, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I I put this down as just a human error. I think they just, oh, we stopped signing 14.0 because now if everything's got 14.1 and they just had not allowed for the os on the monitors i just think it's human error it's a bit of a stupid error for a company of their size but yeah
0: F- 15 not 14 for the for the studio but uh...
1: sorry apologies that's
0: all right good and then the last one's actually quite topical is it looks like the guardian have a report on boris johnson's iphone being infected with a pegasus spyware which so, is
1: i was gonna say i've got no idea how, and i should know more about this how the pegasus spyware really infects your iphone
0: it can be installed through text message was my was my understanding of it but you have to be sort of targeted by it and once it's on your phone, it can turn your phone into a remote listening device. so this is a piece of software that was developed by an Israeli company I think that was to be installed on you know people that they wanted to keep an eye on, but it was a a public secure a private security firm sorry where you could buy the software from the highest bidder and various, Bad actors, for want of a better phrase, could have this installed to monitor their wives and girlfriends for what they were getting up to, their political opponents, and everything else that was going on with it. And it was quite a scandal for Apple, who've, who came down very hard and revoked keys for the developers and all sorts of things. But it is quite interesting that we're still sort of seeing this rumbling on you know, for, for this, you know, number 10 suspected of being a target of this spyware attack. And Boris Johnson apparently knows about it. So we'll we'll see where it goes. It's early days for the story yet. I mean, it's literally just broken as we were uh, starting this podcast. So there's quite a lot to come, I think. But interesting.
1: But, but for me, the bit I'm struggling with is how does it work on an iOS device about sandboxing and, and all of that?
0: Anything can be hacked, though, can't it? You know, if you spend all your time working with it, it doesn't matter how sandboxed you are. Of the some system level call that you can have access to, that you know, in I don't know, via iMessage turns on the microphone and allows you to record that within your sandbox. You can still send that off unless you're even out of the sandbox. So there is a security model for the iPhone, as there is for multiple devices. But spyware and malware still exists, no matter how good the security model can be, and. If you think of the surface area of the iPhone and its penetration amongst world leaders as a secure device, if you've got something that works, then, of course, you're just going to do everything you can to keep releasing it and keep updating it.
1: Yeah, true, true. You're right. Okay, I, I probably just need to read up on a bit more because I, I always look at my phone as being the safest device I can have, but you're right. Something's going to break through once in a while.
0: Yeah, and these are just the things you know about, aren't they? And, you know, you should always be a little bit paranoid when it comes to computer security and device security. And, you know, we've talked before about being the people in our families responsible for keeping things up to date. In this case, even keeping it up to date didn't work for a a little while because it it wasn't a well publicized thing. So, yeah, watch this space.
1: Should we move on to media?
0: let's move on to media i think we will be quite short on media today so i know you haven't been watching it but i was very excited to see a for all mankind
1: season three teaser trailer released i haven't seen it but i will do after the show does it does it look good is it is it wet your appetite
0: it does look good so I, I it's difficult to know how to talk about it on the podcast so for all mankind is an alt history version of what happened from sort of the 60s onwards the season starts no spoilers with seeing it, you know, step onto the moon rather than an American astronaut. And it sort of goes from there and how everything changed from that point forward. And it's been moving forward. So we went from the 60s to sort of the 80s in the second season, and we're going into the 90s uh, in the third season. And it, it starts with the other one left off, with the astronauts and cosmonauts exploring a, another planet. So, yeah, it's it's quite exciting. It's very short, less than a minute, uh, but, but grabbed my attention and uh, will probably make me keep me paying for Apple TV until July when it's available.
1: That's interesting because I thought the original premise was you're going to have uh, one season per decade, whereas actually what you're saying is they're kind of doing one and a bit decades per season.
0: Yeah, they sort of move along through it because every season goes on. I mean, it's not. it could be like 65 to 75 if you think about it like that. It's not just this is the 60s, this is the 70s, this is the 80s. So they have moved along, but it's been interesting. And there's lots of, if you're into sort of the space exploration uh, side of things and we're a bit geeky about it, there's lots of nods to that. There's familiar characters, there's names, and there's there's places and, uh, you know, launch vehicles and things that were prototyped or thought about, like the Russian Buran rocket and things like that, have actually appeared within it. So it's really well done.
1: Sounds like it's very well researched. I I did watch a bit of season one, and I think I just ran out of time when it came out. So I've put that back on my list. I've got a lot of TV to watch.
0: Yeah, I I know the feeling. I I started watching Moon Knight, one of the Disney Plus things at last as well uh, with my daughter, which is a bit off the wall for a Marvel show. It's not your typical superhero origin story at all. I know nothing about the comic character. So there's been a little bit of that going on as well. But yeah, very good.
1: I guess they've done so many things at Marvel that they can start exploring a few more different, different places now.
0: They, they can. And I mean, the thing, when you think about the Marvel success story of the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is they started with a minor character. Iron Man was never a huge character. You know, in the Marvel cinemas, you know, he wasn't Spider Man, he wasn't the X Men, because Marvel had sold the rights off to Spider Man and the X Men. So they had to start with someone a, bit, a little less well known. And if you look at what's developed from that, it's good for them to take those chances on the more minor characters
1: to see how it goes. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you can't fault their strategy. It's, it's turned out pretty good for them. It really has. Hey, look, well, World Media finally, I went to the cinema this week Ooh. with the children, a very small independent cinema which was quite interesting to go go somewhere a bit different um but actually we watched uh sonic the hedgehog 2 it was good all around family film very similar to sonic the hedgehog 1 i found it quite interesting because i also played the games as a kid on my, on my sega master system and my friend's sega master system 2 and mega drives so great to see it got on with the story and they're taking a computer game and making movies out of it jim carrey was in it who was the right guy for the part for Dr. Robotnik. It was all right. If you enjoyed the first one, you'll probably enjoy this one because it's of a very similar vein. Kids enjoyed it, and it was nice just to go to the cinema for a couple of hours and do nothing.
0: I have played the Sonic games. I haven't seen the first Sonic movie. I think my kids are a little old for it. and For me, there's still to be a film based on a computer game that's any good. So you're saying this is the first one?
1: I'm not saying it's any good. I think if I didn't have children, I wouldn't have watched it.
0: (laughs) Well, that says a lot. So it's still World of Warcraft by Duncan Jones. It's the as close you can get to describing as an okay computer game based movie.
1: I don't think I've ever seen that.
0: Well, there you go. There's th- that you could walk it. We should watch it. That might turn into homework.
1: Okay. Well, um, it, it, it was interesting to see, and it was a game I had a lot of affinity for because it was on the first game console I ever owned. So it was nice to see it, but I probably wouldn't have rushed to watch if I didn't have children.
0: Fair enough, that's all the comment you need. I think that'll do it for for media, and we'll, we'll keep our eyes open as to what else is going on. So turning to gaming briefly, I think, have you got any updates on Gran Turismo 7, or have you not had a chance to sort of do anything with it?
1: Played a very small amount. So sadly, nothing, nothing major to report on the games front.
0: Well, I thought I'd circle back around to what we were talking about in the last show, about sort of lack of games on Mac, and do a little bit of investigation. So I've been messing around with a Linux install recently as well. And everybody knows how finicky Linux can be about doing anything. Even just getting the graphics drivers on your card to work can can be a big deal. Whereas a Mac's the all-in-one thing, with the exception of the x86, 64-bit, 32-bit thing, as we've been discussing already. So I had a look at what my Steam library and what was available on my M1 Silicon Mac. And I have 309 games in my Steam library, which is an awful lot of games, which I've accumulated since Steam launched. uh, You and I used to play... um, Counter-Strike back in the day when we both went to university together. And the Steam platform launched with Counter-Strike. It was the first game you could buy uh, on Steam when it became something you bought stuff off and not just something you downloaded from. And I remember the move of Counter-Strike 1.6 where it became a big deal. And it's, it's been around a long time. And they are the predominant seller of games on the PC.
1: But also when it launched, it was a very different concept, wasn't it? Of having a app that you, A, bought games in and B, launched your games from. It was very different to uh, what we were used to. Is, I think now is quite different because you get, I think it's Origin now and is it battle.net for the Blizzard, Activision stuff? Um, but back then when it launched, I remember it. And I've still, I must sign into my CMC can have a look, but it was just a completely new concept. And it's lasted well, hasn't it? I think the, the premise has stood the test of time. The design they came up with, what, 15, 17, 18 years ago? 2002, I'm going to say.
0: 20 years ago. It's at least 20 years ago because Steam was the thing before my, my eldest was born and she's 18. So it's at least 18 years ago.
1: Wow. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I think it must. we must be talking sort of 2000-ish for the launch of Steam.
1: Yeah, maybe. Maybe I thought it was slightly later, but yeah.
0: Anyway. get gone. So Steam is a store where you can buy games and it's a launcher, as you said, where you can launch games from. So I have 309 games in my Steam library. All of which run on Windows. When I flip it to Mac games, only 88 of those games show as compatible with my Mac. I tried one that I'm pretty sure is an older game called Running With Rifles. It did not run on my Silicon M1 at all, whereas a couple of the newer ones did. So uh, Crusader Kings 3 ran perfectly well. I did the same test on the Linux box that I had installed, and I flipped it to Linux compatibility. I did do one extra step. I installed the Proton compatibility layer, which is built within the Steam client, which is what the Steam Deck runs on. So it's an emulator effectively, or like an emulator, that that copies Windows binaries like DirectX to make games run. And after that, it showed 305 games available on Linux. So out of my 309, Only four were not playable on my Linux install.
1: Wow, that's interesting. So on the Mac side, are there two levels of compatibility? One for Intel chips and one for M1 chips or Apple Silicon?
0: Well, the problem is it doesn't alert you as to which is which when you click on the games, which I see is a real flaw in the launcher.
1: Do you think Steam have just stopped with the Mac side predominantly?
0: I feel that they're certainly heading in that direction their attention has been drawn by linux and you can see that in the steam deck and gabe newell who runs valve has been saying for a while how he dislikes the route that windows is taking and and obviously microsoft is a competitor they've got a game store as well and they've got games pass and they've got the xbox so it's more complicated than it just being the operating system of choice that people use to play games on they have an embedded interest in making it worse on work on linux but i think you're right i think Everything we've talked about up till now, about Apple's lack of interest in gaming is becoming apparent, even on the big platforms like
1: Steam. Interesting. I hadn't hadn't really thought about this. I'd forgotten that Steam still ran on a Mac, if I'm honest. But I can see why most things will work on Linux, because obviously I'd forgotten, again, the Steam Deck runs on Linux. So that's only going to get better, isn't it?
0: I was really impressed with the Proton thing. I mean, when I did it initially, I think there were like 150 or so games. I should have checked actually as part of my more formal investigation. But just flicking on Proton and saying, run what's compatible and just watching almost everything in the list pop into view and just scrolling through it. And I've tried a few of games that like uh, Command & Conquer Red Alert uh, the remaster of that was was available. Became available on the on the Linux platform. I double clicked it, installed it, ran it, ran in the high definition thing. It was running at multiple frames per second. They didn't have the counter up on the screen, but the performance was, if not as good as Windows, only very marginally less. So even something like that, which is a relatively new game that probably makes use of the most up to date DirectX drivers and all the rest of it, was running flawlessly on Linux. I was really impressed.
1: Oh, it's good. It's really good, and hopefully it bodes well for your Steam Deck.
0: Yeah, I think for the Steam Deck they've got it a bit more sorted out, that there is actually a compatibility list and they've got sort of three levels of games which they'll show when you look at it on the Steam Deck. This won't work, this is reported issues and this is flawless. And Obviously, I've got 309 games in my library. I should have a couple of flawless ones in there. I would hope. But you're right, that proton compatibility thing works so well, certainly in the games that I've tried so far, that it does bode well for the future, but there maybe be a little bit of tweaking in drivers or by the developers themselves. You're going to end up with something really, really compelling. Maybe not in this generation of the Steam Deck, but it'll have laid the groundwork for the second or third generation, and that'll be really impressive.
1: Again, it's having that strategy of, right, where are we now? Where do we want to get? And I think, obviously, they've got we're going to go with Linux and have dedicated gaming devices. I mean, do you think there ever be a Steam console under your TV? I mean, it could well be.
0: Well, Steam have failed with hardware before, so as, as you've been away from this a little bit, you might not have known that they have they tried the Steam Controller a few years back, which was sort of a touch-sensitive thing compared to the Xbox. It was quite competitively priced as well. I think it was about 35 quid, and at the same time, they launched, launched a thing called the Steam Link, which would let you broadcast the contents of your PC or Mac or Linux box to a TV. So if you want to play Civilization VI on your TV with a controller, you could actually do that with a tiny little bit of hardware. Nobody bought it. I bought one and I bought a controller. I used it, it worked quite well, but actually all the functionality of it could be replaced with a Raspberry Pi because all you're doing is in-home streaming. So now you can't buy the hardware, but you can install a layer onto your Raspberry Pi and you can run the same thing. So you can stream to your TV. They also had Steam PCs at one point that they were trying to make a console-like experience on. So you could buy it. It was running SteamOS, which was a modified Linux, and you could stick it under your TV or run it as a gaming PC. And they sold none. I think the program lasted about six months.
1: So how is Steam Deck different then? Is, do you think Steam Deck is going to be like the Nintendo Switch for Steam, in essence, and maybe this is their route in of, you know, will you be able to dock it and put it on your TV? Well, you, well, you can. So it does like come it. with
0: a dock. It's a USB-C connector and you can broadcast it on your TV if you want and run it in that way. And you can plug in a keyboard and mouse, dismiss the Steam overlay onto it and you can actually use it as a Linux PC as well if you want. So it's quite functional from that point of view, but it's a games console. I think they're taking a really interesting route with it. And if you look at the money they've made so far, it's the second, been the second best selling thing on Steam for five or six weeks now in terms of revenue. So enough people have bought in the hundreds of thousands, enough people have bought the first version of this, and they're still waiting for their orders. I read a thing the other day that probably within the first 20 minutes by the time pre-orders went, they still haven't finished fulfilling the orders for the first 20 minutes, people. Never mind people like me that ordered it the next day. So I think there's a healthy demand for this. And if you look at YouTube and you look at the various gaming websites and things, you can see that there is a demand for this device and the people that are using it are, are doing the best they can with it.
1: You know what? I can see the demand for it. It's definitely something that I would go for in that, what, I could just buy a device and I've got to do nothing, and it would just allow me to play games, and it we'll would just work, and needs zero config, it's definitely right up my street. I mean, it's kind of why I've got my iPad, it's kind of why I've got my Switch, and that's why they stick with me, because I just turn them on, and they, well, if my Switch is charged, they just work.
0: Yeah, but... I think there's a situation, even somebody like you, who's not all that bothered about it, but used to play some games back in the day, and I know you bought the Command & Conquer remastered game. If you could pick up a thing and take it with you, and it's a good enough experience that you could sit and play it on a train for 40 minutes instead of reading your notes on the way back out from London, you'd probably find that quite interesting.
1: Definitely at my street, especially if you mention Command & Conquer.
0: Yep, you see, everybody's got the killer hook.
1: yeah no definitely there's always that thing to get you in but for me to play command and conquer i had to go and get i I basically bought a second hand laptop had to install windows on it install origin and i did install battle.net because i also wanted to have a go at starcraft remaster i don't remember that but it's another thing i've got managed to maintain and i barely turn the thing on because i can't be bothered to get it out whereas if it's a small console just in my bag i'll take it with me i'm more likely to be engaged with it
0: yep I think we'll put the the link to Marquez's review of of that on on the in the show notes as well, and we'll see where we go with that. I think that'll probably do it for us in gaming, Chris. And it's something we'll follow up on as we get you get your play date, I get my Steam deck, and I, I will investigate a little bit more to see if there is some sort of compatibility overlay for Steam, so we know what works. And having said Steam on on uh, Apple platforms, you can get Origin for Apple platforms, and you can get the Epic Store for Apple platforms as well. All these games don't work across them all, but I think it's interesting to me that this move to Apple Silicon has accelerated something away from these binaries because you think if the Mac had stayed Intel, presumably the Proton compatibility layer could have been made to work on there as well, and we'd have a huge library of games on Mac too. So it's it's interesting times.
1: Yeah, you'd have thought so, but it is what it is. Shall we move on?
0: Let's move on. We're going long. So on to the main show, and I wanted to talk a little bit about, and it's related to the gaming thing in one sense, about virtualization on the Mac. I don't know, have you ever done any virtualization on your Mac, Chris?
1: Yeah, years ago. So when, oh, I don't know, Snow Leopard era, so 10.6, I would have been using, I'm having a complete mind blank. What was the virtualization software called, where you'd, you could either use your boot camp installation or, or an image on your, computer. Parallels. Parallels, thank you very much. I remember running Parallels circa version five memory serves use that quite a lot because I used to be a developer so it was great I could run windows on my mac and I used a little bit of virtual box as well because it was free which when you're a student was ideal so yes done quite a bit even done vmware from time to time so I've done a little bit but but you know you're talking circa 10 years ago now when I was really into it of late I do zero virtualization I was interested when there were rumors of an ipad getting sort of virtualization but obviously, that's come to nothing. Whether we see that in a couple of months at WWDC, who knows?
0: We shall see. So, I mean, let's be clear about what we're talking about. So virtualization is software-based virtual virtual versions of physical machines. They're pretend machines based on that. And the, what you were talking about there with parallels and VirtualBox and the VMware workstation that you would have been using at the time are what are called type 2 hypervisors. So they are... Virtual machines that run on top of a, a fully embedded operating system of their own. You ran full-fat macOS, and you wanted to run, give up a bit of resource of that to run another operating system in a window, effectively, on your Mac. That's a Type 2 hypervisor, and there's a few of those. There's VirtualBox, there's VMware Workstation, there's Parallels, there's something called QEMU, which I'll come back to a little bit because it's a complicated one, and then there's UTM, which I'll also come back to in a minute. If there's a type two, there must be a type one, and a type one hypervisor is also called a bare metal hypervisor, and that's where you install the hypervisor hypervisor at the lowest possible level of the operating system. So you don't install macOS, you don't install desktop Linux, or or one of the one of the other Linux or Windows even. You install this bare metal hypervisor, and there are things like Proxmox. VMware ESXi and Microsoft have their own one called Hyper-V, and the point of them has traditionally been for servers. So where you you will run your mail server, your web server, maybe some form of application server, multiple on the same box. You have another box that mirrors those, and then you've got redundancy. So if one of these things falls over, you, you can spin up another one very quickly. Or you can deploy multiple desktops off them and have virtual desktops for people. And lots of companies use, uh, use that as their security model. Well, you've got one of these bare metal hypervisors running on your data center, people connect, and you can deploy virtual desktops to them. It means you can manage things a lot more easily without having to actually give people laptops all the time. You can give them a rubbish laptop with a remote desktop connection They connect to work and you can spin up a virtual machine. It's what we do in, in, in the university. So that's sort of the difference between the hypervisors. And the way Apple have gone with these things is that the change in silicon has meant that they really can't do much of the Type 1 hypervisors, whereas you could have taken a Mac Mini once upon a time, or a Mac Pro once upon a time, and installed a bare metal hypervisor on it. You could have then emulated any of x86 machines on them you know, by, by running them the way I've discussed. And similarly for the Type 2, on an Intel machine at least, you could fire up, a virtual box or VMware workstation, um, and then emulate that. You could run Windows as you did in Parallels, or you could run a Linux, or you could run anything on an x86. Now, Silicon Macs for Type Two hypervisors can also emulate things, but they can only really emulate other ARM-based chips, and so not x86 chips well. So the one that's you've talked about on your Mac is a thing called UTM, which is short for Universal Turing Machine, is what I think the the, the abbreviation stands for, and it's. A pretty front end on qemu which is a an open source emulator where you can install uh utm it installs this qemu thing under the hood and then you can install another version of mac os so you could install another apple silicon compatible version of mac os whatever the one before Monterey was Kalina? big sir big sir so you could emulate big sir on your mac in its apple silicon version but you'd really, really, really struggle to run something x86. So you're not going to be running Snow Leopard in a Virtual virtual VirtualBox on your Apple Silicon Mac.
1: Right, okay. So I've got little need to ever run Mac on Mac. I'd want to run something else on my Mac to play with it or to run something for work, for example.
0: So there's, there's two things there, isn't there? One is, if you're a developer who has apps that are still supported on something like Snow Leopard or Tiger or something like that, And you just bought yourself a silicon Mac. What do you do now? So you can't virtualize the operating system and and the Xcode tools or whatever you were running up to that to support it, which gives you a development headache when you're looking at older versions of the operating system. So that means you need to keep old hardware around potentially if you've still got it. But up until very recently, that hasn't been an issue for you. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is we bought Macs as a university because we could do anything with them from the point of we could spin up Windows if people really didn't like it. We could put Linux on there. There's lots of academic and scientific functions that require Linux and not the free BSD that Mac runs on for the, for these reasons. But you could just put, fire up a virtual machine on those and you can get ahead and do what you needed to do. So those options have been lost, really, to the Mac community at the moment, unless they're ARM-based. So I, I just think it's a bit of a headache that they've got there.
1: Yeah, and I wonder how much of a fact this was 'Cause surely Apple know how many people have got boot camp. I wonder if they'd know how many people are running virtualization though on their Mac. Possibly don't. They possibly don't.
0: VMware might know, Parallels might know for how many copies they sold. And I suppose in some ways it is a bit niche. It's people like you who might need to, you know, a Windows machine to develop on. It's people like me that might need scientific computing that can only be provided in that that, that. that would be a worry for them. Your average Mac user may run Xcode, they may run, you know, Adobe Illustrator and get on and do their work like that. But I think it's enough of an edge case that people were buying Macs because they could be all things to all people. I, th- I think there's a little bit of a storm to come when your academic or your, you know, the person who's been. Buying Max for the enterprise because they could do all of these things suddenly realizes that the Silicon transition Apple Silicon transition isn't letting them do this.
1: So, do you think there's going to be another shoe to drop? Because if I remember when Intel Max came out, there was a bit of a a competition, I guess, in in the indie community, you know, and 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 with developers to hack it to try and get it to run Windows. And then actually, Apple then announced Boot Camp. Do you think there's going to be a Boot Camp equivalent for Silicon where they do something with this? Well, there
0: the could be, and don't get me wrong. If you were to take your, your Mac Mini, and I know you love using it, and, and install UTM on it, you could get the ARM version of Windows and install that on there. Now, the ARM version of Windows is fairly limited. You can install Office on there, but you're not going to be talking running any of those games we talked about before, and you're not going to be running full-fat Visual Studio either. You're only going to be able to run Visual Studio code or something. It, it's it's an interesting place. It's it, What you were talking about before, about Apple being ahead of the curve in terms of sort of pushing along and cutting out the cruft, I think the other distributions, Windows, Linux-based ones, are also moving towards ARM-based chips rather than Intel because they are faster, because they are more efficient, because they are you know battery less battery hungry. Hungry, but they're not there yet.
1: So, what's going to happen first? Do you think Apple will come up with a, a mechanism to invert Rosetta in essence? Because that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Of you want to take take your ARM world and allow Intel to run on it, or or will? linux and windows adopt run on arm and therefore they'll play into apple's silicon hands in essence or are intel going to release some new chips i'm assuming intel's new chips there aren't going to be arm or are they
0: I don't, they're going to stick to the x86 platform in one sense because that's what makes them the money. But if you think of the proliferation of ARM chips, every smartphone is an ARM chip. Qualcomm uses ARM chips. All Apple's smartphones are ARM chip. The one or two Intel chips they tried to put in the phones failed miserably. And in lower power stuff, Intel just hasn't worked. Having said that, they've got a lot of money there's nothing to stop them sort of innovating along that pathway but it's just i think it's an interesting and sort of an easy place to be at the moment in terms of supporting the past moving towards the future and what you're able to do with all these devices moving forward where we are so it's it's fascinating to me
1: yeah and i'll be honest i hadn't really thought about the um apple silicon transition dropping virtualization it just kind of passed me by because i'm not as close to it but now you've mentioned it, that would put me off a little bit. Because if I did use to like just having one machine that, like you say, you could use anything for. So um it's a bit of a negative. But I'm guessing Apple ran some numbers before they did it and thought it's just just collateral damage, we don't need to worry about. It.
0: Yeah, there's nothing to say you can't make money from it. Chromebooks have done very well by just basically being a web browser, haven't they? And you can get away with a lot more than you used to. You can code in a web browser. You can do Rust coding or web coding or or whatever else and run virtual machines on somebody else's estate. If you really had to, you could spin up an Amazon S3 instance or something with Windows on it and get through that way the route I've taken is I've got an old Windows, X windows PC that I've put one of these bare metal hypervisors on, Proxmox in my case. So I can spin these things up if and when I need to in a web browser on my Mac. And that works quite well for me. But it's not an option for everyone. It's not that one machine fits all that you were talking about there.
1: Yeah. So I think I'm curious to see where WWDT goes. Because like I say, there was talk about some form of virtualization for the iPad. Now, whether that got muddled... And it's actually more virtualization on macOS, OS, but post ARM transition maybe, where they've they've got some sort of layer, because it wouldn't be beyond Apple to do something.
0: No, I agree. Watch this space, I guess. It's, if it's interesting enough to the listeners, I guess we can come back and talk about it again, or if the sort of developments, I think we could bring it back around. And there's something I'll follow up on myself at one point, and that's Docker. And I don't know if you've used much Docker in your workplace. Which is sort of
1: no, we're all Hyper V. So we're doing your type one that you mentioned earlier, but I don't have any access to any of it. So I'm very abstracted from it. I literally just use my iPad and I log on with my one account and I do all my work things, but I'm very much aware we've got a whole bunch of Hyper V in the background because I have to pay the bills for it.
0: Yeah, well, it might be worth you taking a sort of sideways glance at Docker at some point as well. And I won't go into it in great detail here, but it sort of encapsulates operating systems with the, the idea of just running an app. So in many cases, you, ju- you don't really care how it gets there other than security and stuff like that. But what you want, I mean, a, a good example would be some of the open office suites or sort of collaboration software like that, where you can just spin up, all I want to do is run X. You spin up a Docker, which is just a, the most minimal part of a machine that you can manage with a web server, with the application server, with the code built into it, with all the security models running on this sort of thing. And you can run 15 or 16 or 17 Docker images in the space of one sort of virtualized operating system. So you can do an awful lot. And that's supported on Silicon Max, presumably with the ARM versions of cut down Ubuntu or Debian or whatever they're running on. And, and they're a fascinating way forward for a lot of these problems that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, okay. That kind of makes sense and does ring true because certainly what I do here at work is obviously we run some legacy software and we've got to run a whole version of Windows and back it up and all the databases. And actually what you want is something like this where you're you're containerizing it and just running just what you need and you don't need a full VM suite running all those resources just run a piece of software for one or two people to log into once a month to check some legacy data, for example. So I can definitely see the benefits of that. You're right, I should definitely play with some of this stuff. Um, I just struggle to find the time, as you know, doing my homework outside of work and family life. There's there's a small chunk of time. And I was listening to John Seracusa recently going on about this. He goes, I've just had limited time for a number of years to do things. And you've got to pick what to do in those pools of time. And occasionally it might be a quick go on Gran Turismo or watch a tv show or i don't know today i played football with my son in the garden which was quite nice which is you know it's, it's trying to strike the right balance
0: that's probably a better thing to be getting over than doing frankly but i think it's interesting that and all these things affect people's choice to use apple hardware and software so it's worth keeping an eye on what's going on on the other side of the fences and, and how that comes back to not bite the apple user but how it affects us in the enterprise and the education and you know and all of its various uses it's worth keeping an eye so but it does impact on the way I use, you know, Macs and have done for years. So it's interesting.
1: I think it is interesting. I think what I've learned today though is I've super aged out on some of my skills because I used to be all over this stuff. Used to be into development a lot, very techie, but now I'm more in management. I've just massively aged out on my abilities and and my knowledge of doing, like, say, virtualization, development, know what games run on a Mac. I just, yeah, I live in a very different world, I guess, at the moment
0: that's perfectly acceptable like i say better to go and play football with your kids i think that'll do it for the main part of the show chris but for the first time in the history of the podcast we actually have a question from a listener which came in using our uh, email address which is wake from sleep at prosudmail.com. and ed emailed us uh, saying dear chris and rod enjoying the podcast thanks have you thought about reviewing some podcasting apps cheers ed have we thought about reviewing some podcasting apps chris
1: i'll be honest i haven't um just because I use overcast pretty happy with it quite like the recent update that came out and I've been on overcast. I don't know since he came out. So donkeys years ago, which I think it came out just before iOS seven. So given we're now on iOS 15, so that's got to be seven to eight years ago. And that's kind of all I've really used. I did flirt with Apple podcasts. So I don't know, five years ago, but it lasted about a month and then I gave up yourself.
0: Yeah. I I'm an overcast user. I, got horribly disgusted with Apple Podcasts when during one of the betas it ate all my um, 3G at that time data uh, and actually ended up costing me some money for the way it was using it and they've changed the way so that you can download things on, on Apple devices since and data's a lot cheaper these days as well but I've studiously avoided Apple podcasts ever since there are other alternatives there's an al- another Apple specific one called Castro and then there's a, a cross platform one so if you're an Android user then there's Pocket Cast as well but I think what we should maybe do Chris is go away and try a couple of these other uh, podcast clients, listen to our podcast and others in them, we both are fairly he- heavy podcast consumers and uh, just to give, give some opinions next week the week after.
1: Yeah, definitely that's what I was thinking. Uh, you know what? I've got a couple of commutes coming up this week, so why don't I, I might try out Apple Podcasts for a day or two and then maybe do the same with the Castro or Pocket Casts. They were just the most popular ones I've heard of, this but I thought Four was quite a good number. We obviously don't need to try Overcast anymore. I'm curious to go back to Apple Podcasts actually and see, see what that's like. I started using it a while ago just because it was I think it was doing CarPlay at the time and others weren't. And I did have a car that had CarPlay then. I haven't at the moment. So but I'm interested to try it. And I think they do Apple TV support as well. And I do use my Apple TV in my shed.
0: Yeah, I think they're the big ones, aren't they? I mean, what we've left off that list there is Spotify. Spotify is a podcast client, which I'm not terribly keen to try. Although I have listed this podcast on Spotify. Uh, so maybe it would only be us to actually listen to it there. And there are others. There's things like Luminary, you know, Downcast. But four to start with if we come across others as we're trying out then let's do that and let's report back to ed either next week or the week after and see what we how we've gone
1: yeah i think that sounds like a plan we may need longer than one week but let's, let's see where we get maybe maybe try one this week and, and one next week couple
0: of weeks brilliant that sounds like a show to me chris
1: cool cheers rod thanks for tonight and um, look if anybody wants to get in contact do drop us an email at wake at or reach out on twitter and our username is wfs underscore podcast love to hear from you talk to you next week cheers rod thanks